Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And this This is Round Round Springfield. That is the first time that we are saying that for our first (laughs) episode back of this miniseries. And it felt as awkward as I imagined. (laughs) Maybe even more so. Hmm. I was wondering if we should have like a saxophone play underneath. So... Maybe mm. next time we'll find someone off the street. Yeah, that sounds good. I think it might sound bad, but it's a cool <laughs> idea. <laughs> oh, you mean like recording from here mm-hmm. to someone on the street? <laughs> well, then, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Mm. We're figuring it out on the fly, and that's what I like about us. We were considering uh, having everything polished and ready and prepared, but that that's, ain't us. That ain't us. <laughs> and you know us, and you love us, if hopefully. You, if you don't know us, we are coming from a different podcast. It's the same channel, though, so you probably... I'd be impressed if you didn't know it, right. but welcome. Yeah. Uh, this is a podcast where we talk about the Simpsons and then some. Basically, our last podcast, we talked to people about their favorite episode of The Simpsons that hasn't been picked yet, which is very fun, but becomes more challenging as the years go by. Right. And we decided rather than talk about episodes that not everyone is super like thrilled, you know, it would be people's sixth choice or 10th choice. Let's just start something new. And we also were having so much fun talking to writers and people like Al Jean and wanting to talk about stuff other than The Simpsons that they've worked on. And we figured, let's just make that a show. Right, because the truth is, you know, all of the Simpsons folk, people in The Simpsons verse, are all very talented writer, creative people. And so, you know, and they all work in TV. And and when you work in TV, you have things like failed pilots or you have (laughs) like other side gigs or, you know, a lot can happen, of course, over this humongous history of The Simpsons, the longest running TV show and the last TV show that will ever run, I think, in the history of the world uh, by, by the way that it's going. And so, yes, we were really inspired by, you know, some of our episodes with Al Jean talking about non-Simpsons things. We like talked Alf. about Alf. Yeah. And the Gary Shandling show with him. And so that kind of planted the idea that there is, you know, a treasure trove yet to be explored of, you know, Simpsons people talking about non-Simpsons things that we think, you know, of course, has shared DNA with the Simpsons because, you know, they worked on that and they worked on this and and you can kind of like take your creative drive from there and, and, you know, maybe there's parts that are inspired by their work on the Simpsons. We don't know. We've yet to discover and that's what this podcast is going to be. So we're so excited. We are very, very excited and we are thrilled by who we got for our first guest it's a big get. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the stage. Yeah, you know him from Beavis and Butthead. I'm going to go all the way back there. Um, you know him from Futurama. You also know him from The Simpsons and Disenchantment. That was kind of zigzagging in the order. It's not chronology. Chronology. <laughs> I'm nailing this. I've been calling her Crandall. <laughs> Please welcome to the show, David X. Cohen. Yay! Yay! <laughs> David, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. And your chronology is perfect for someone who writes about time travel. So don't worry about that. It's going to, I mean, there's so many parallel universes. It's going to be right in one of them, right? Exactly. One out of infinity. (laughs) (laughs) That's the odds odds I'm going to play. The odds are long, but it could happen. So, David, we're very excited for you to be our very first guest. Uh, It's going to be a bit of a roller coaster for all of us. So... 
with your time travel skills in mind, if right. you have seen anything in the future that would help make the show good, you just let us know. Because yeah. we are open to feedback and criticism. Uh, but it'd be great <laughs> if you could give it to us before we make yeah. the mistakes. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, a lot of people are saying this is the best episode ever. Oh, many years from now. Really? Club yeah. Podmas. Mm. Um, Excellent. Wow, that's and amazing. I'm sorry to tell you that because that means it's all downhill after episode well, that's one. Okay. By that's okay. That's yet to be. <laughs> yeah, we know that, you know, the Al Jean one is going to be a real humdinger. So oh, we're yeah. already, you know, gripping <laughs> for that. Uh, so many of our guests that are going to be on the show have also come on our previous podcast, Everything's Coming Up Simpsons. And so they have gotten the chance to, like, talk about an episode. Uh, but because we have not actually ever gotten super deep divey with you we would love to talk a little bit about the simpsons and your time there but rather than wait we're talking about the simpsons Uh-oh. oh goodbye oh no <laughs> wow that was a really short episode but you know what i think we learned a lot Allie. i see why people think it holds up <laughs> um, so uh rather than ask you to pick like one favorite episode or you know speak to the first episode you wrote we would love to kind of just hear about your time working there you worked on what is it 121 episodes uh, is that as, the actual count? I believe it is, because that's including uh, ones that you were story editor or uh, mm-hmm. staff writer or producer. And if unless... That would be a good run on most shows. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. but that's just a drop in yeah, the what bucket. Percentage you know, the Simpsons. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Like At the time I was there, people still left. Writers would come and writers would go and work mm-hmm. on it. They'd leave to write a pilot. After about you know 15 seasons, people started going... This show's not ending. I'm not going to write a pilot. Right, I'm, not, right. I'm not stupid. I'm going <laughs> to keep this lifetime job. But when I was there, people still left occasionally. So, I, And that's the reason I was able to be hired, probably, because <laughs> I'm sure some people were leaving, thinking, like, oh, so The Simpsons is entering season five. There's no way We better last. get out of here before this boat goes down. <laughs> so, so that opened up some spaces for people like me, who were relatively new writers, to come in. So... I don't know what you want to hear how I got the job or sure. you're, okay. Yeah, I'm curious about your just first steps into TV writing too because it felt I mean you come from you've got a masters in computer science. That's right. That's the highest degree <laughs> available. So don't research I, yeah. that. <laughs> yes. um, no, there's actually there's a pretty good story there so that's a fine place to start. Great. Um and it, it it all goes to this idea that TV is a weird business to get your first job and you know you cannot put your resume up on the internet and assume you're going to get a call. (laughs) Come in and we have an opening. We need, you know, someone with your resume that it's just, you need some weird lucky thing. So here's mine. So as backstory, I had always been interested in writing and I wrote a lot as a hobby and I wrote like my high school's humor column for the newspaper, stuff like that. What was the, uh, the column called? Cohen's Corner. It, the the the, uh, <laughs> the newspaper was called the Oracle, but what, I don't remember what the column was called. Honestly, I don't know if it had a running. It may have changed just whatever the name of the week mm. was. Now, boy, I thought we were going to go back fishing for memories for the Simpsons, but now <laughs> this is hopeless. We really I'm put you on the you. spot. But then yeah. in, in college, I wrote for the Harvard Lampoon, like right. several other people you've probably met in here. Um, but I didn't know. I mean, I grew up on the East Coast. I was not aware that. There were jobs in entertainment. I thought, you know, it just appeared on TV or whatever. So I only became aware that that was an option after I was well along my science career, which is what I always wanted to do. And I went off to graduate school, but then, by then, then I was having second thoughts, like, should I have written? So I ended up taking a leave of absence eventually from UC Berkeley, where I was studying computer science, started writing lots of stuff, sending material all over the place, not successfully, of course, for a year or so, as common <laughs> running story you'll hear. Yeah. 
Um, but one thing I sent, I sent out a packet of stuff to David Letterman's show, and uh, his head writer liked it. Rob Burnett, who I didn't know and still don't know, he was very helpful to me. However, uh, he uh, <laughs> he liked my stuff. He told me he was passing it on to David Letterman, who makes the final call, and David Letterman passed. So this story is already taking a surprise twist. You thought I was going to say really, something positive there. I really did. But then, meanwhile, Mike Judge, creator of Beavis and Butthead, King of the Hill, Silicon Valley, all, all your favorites, uh, he had just done his first Beavis and Butthead, which was making the rounds on like the film circuits and stuff, and mm -hmm. MTV was showing, and, they, and MTV had just picked it up to be a series. And so he went on as a guest on David Letterman, and I guess he was talking to this head writer afterwards saying, like, yeah, I don't know what to do. I need a bunch of really cheap writers right away. <laughs> so the other guy handed him my packet of stuff, and he called me up, and I pitched some stuff, and then he hired me. So that that was Whoa. a bizarre, you know, two people I didn't know conspired to hire me and it didn't pay anything but then the show was a success so then i had a resume and an animation resume uh, as far as it ties into this podcast today mm -hmm. so there you go That's so then uh, so then eventually i got hired at the simpsons and here i am having forgotten everything but that because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was exciting so yeah. you mentioned that you'd always wanted to do comedy and then mm -hmm. that you you know you you got a um a ba in physics and then mm -hmm. like uh, an ms in computer science and that both your parents were biologists mm -hmm. um so where did your love of comedy come from were they also kind of showing my, you my dad was very funny uh he was I, could, I guess kind of a, a very high-level dad comedy guy, <laughs> yeah. and I think I picked it up from him probably. But interestingly enough, the, my science fiction uh, part of my background is all from my mom, who really? was a huge mm. science fiction fan, and she always had science fiction books lying around all over the house, which I started reading at mm -hmm. some point. So you can kind of easily make your analysis of my <laughs> career choices. Right. How do they feel about, you know, having a son who's uh, pursuing these, you know, science and math and then is kind of taking a chance and even, you said, a sabbatical for a second to, to pursue writing? Were they supportive? Were they, they excited? Were, they were very supportive and I think very nervous and uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, as they should be. I think that's a healthy dose. You know, it was one of the things like, we're very supportive. <laughs> they were like, you know, you... They they said the right things and I could tell they were very worried, but very it worked sweet. out ultimately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the story that and maybe we've heard it a lot on our previous version of the podcast that people talk about, like you know, parents that are not part of the industry. So maybe there's like a lack of understanding, and maybe that actually helps them with you know not knowing how hard it is. Yeah. You know that it's like yes, they were supportive, or they they were maybe a little skeptical until I started making money, <laughs> until the things I worked on became. I think it was more then, like when their friends kids oh, yeah. knew what I was doing. You know. That's a big moment. It's like my mom, she hasn't quite gotten cable TV yet. <laughs> really? So she wasn't familiar with Beavis and Butthead, for example, at the time yeah. or whatever. But, you know, if friends of hers, kids knew about it, then that that showed <laughs> I was doing something. Right, least, so. right, right. If you don't mind, and, and assuming that you remember some of this, so writing a column and then writing a TV show, like as mm -hmm. a staff writer, mm -hmm. are, are pretty different beasts. Uh, did you feel like you knew very much about what it even meant to be a staff writer? And were you, did it come naturally? Or was it something that you kind of were, were picking up as you went along? You can only learn it as you go along. I mean, these the Simpsons is largely written in the rewrite room. Tell me, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm sure I'm going to cover a lot of ground you've covered before, so just kick me or something. But, <laughs> we'll, um, we'll give you a firm shot. I'm going to kick you, but not for that reason. <laughs> it's so fascinating. And when you first start, 
first of all, you're just some schmo, and you're in there with, a, in the Simpsons case, some legendary writers like George Meyer was there when I started, and uh, Mike Reese and Al Jean were still coming in for the to finish up their previous episodes. So, you know, you're really humbled. And <laughs> you're sitting there, and there's a lot of very complicated rules that you have to learn. And for one, as a, as a new person, really, you can't talk too much because. Mm-hmm. It's just rude and weird, and the other people have a rhythm you're not part of. But if you don't talk at all, it's like, all right, that guy didn't pan out, you know. (laughs) So you really have to walk the line and open your mouth when you have something good to say and not really otherwise. Because you have to train – you basically have to train the other people that when they hear your voice, they're going to hear something worthwhile. If if it's like a one out of ten chance they're going to hear something worthwhile, then – you're gone. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. it. You know, so you have to really strike the right balance. And um, another thing you learn is not to pitch negative stuff like, oh, that joke won't work because blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Just shut your mouth and <laughs> let the experienced people worry about that stuff, you know, and be supportive. These are all kind of the rules of comedy in general, right, probably. Right. But think of the way to make it better, but not to say why it's not going to work. It's so interesting. And you, there's so many. Again, kick me if I'm going on too long, but the dynamics are so interesting in the rear room where somebody's in charge. There's a dictator in charge. It's not a democracy, and mm-hmm. it wouldn't work if it was. What Would you have a vote on every joke? You know, somebody's deciding <laughs> yeah. what we're talking about and what's going in the script. But there's other people in the room who may even sort of be more senior writers than the person who is nominally in charge. And so everyone's kind of looking out of the corner of their eye to that person for their <laughs> reaction. And so you you have to really learn over time who's running the show and who's wink running the show and <laughs> right, who, right, you know, right. who can kind of veto things with an eye roll and stuff like that. So yeah, they... you, know, you may think everyone left. Why didn't that go in? Well, so-and-so behind me may have, you know, they made a subtle <laughs> nose wiggle or something. So. Did you ever, like, take a stand for a joke that you felt passionate about, whether it was something you pitched or somebody else pitched and it was vetoed? You know, probably. this is We're getting into specifics, which right. I'm not going to remember. But, I mean, that's a one of those taboos where I would say, like, if you pitch something as the new person, as a relatively new person even, and it doesn't go in, and then you bring it up again, that's bad. That's annoying. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, people want, even if it's, you know, you know, it's good. But um, and then I would say, but over the years, if you become kind of the more of the person who's other people are looking to for your opinion, you can kind of jokingly repitch your thing. If if an hour has been wasted trying to come up with something <laughs> right. better and no one did, you can you can then you can kind of say, like, well, there was that thing I pitched about the bowling ball, you know, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and then you can get away with it. But, yeah, you have to always be aware of your place it's not it's not everyone is not equal there's and 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 again there are much more experienced people who should be running the show and are right yeah it feels like a lot of just reading the room like point by point you know not sort of like blanket rules for it but yeah just you saying like you can bring it back after an hour if you're really struggling but it feels like you can only bring it back in that moment if you say it kind of jokingly too (laughs) you know instead of it being like i am the best in my opinion is the most you know and i've heard stories of people that come in with that attitude or similar and think that they're like you know writer hero like here to save the day and it just never works out in that way because a writer's room a lot is like a family and so you kind of have to understand the family dynamics before you rock the boat another thing i often say is that it it's sort of this uh 
Schrodinger's cat quantum mechanics experiment. I, I don't know if that's We're the right analogy. We're not going to talk about science on this podcast. I, I, <laughs> look, we asked Stop David X. Cohen to get in here. Some, I paid this a lot for that. Get. I paid a lot for that physics degree. Okay, all I'm right, fine. It. No, but there's this thing where you do the room is operating as sort of a unit. If anyone else walks in to observe who's not normally in there, the, it, everything is completely wrecked up. And so I would say, like, if you you change the outcome by observing that experiment, which is the famous quantum mechanics right. thing. You know, if you, tr- you change the thing you're trying to measure when you measure it. Mm-hmm. So these things are all fascinating, hard to describe because it is such a closed environment. And anyone who thinks they have observed it, in- unless they kind of stayed there long enough to be- become part <laughs> of it, they didn't necessarily observe it. You know? mm-hmm. It is true. And there are a lot of podcasts kind of about writing already. And, you know, if anyone listening is an aspiring writer, I recommend listening to like the Nerdist writing panel and different mm-hmm. things. and But it is it is really true that once you're in there, you know, you're going to find that each room is very different. And I am very curious to kind of hear even just how different the room you were in with a lot of the same people felt when you became like a story editor or when your title would right. shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and no need to get into specifics, but um, how, well, one thing that is, you know, we could look up, but just to ask you, like, how long were you a staff writer before you moved to the next position? And, and what did it feel like? Okay, well, <laughs> tell us, first we want to get let's there. Let's talk about these titles in general, because there's, there's, yeah. there's a very specific hierarchy kind of laid out by the Writers Guild of these titles, even though, by the way, when I started, we weren't even in the Writers Guild, it was a non-union animation wasn't covered at that mm-hmm. time. And it took some oh, wow. group effort later. But and it's still and, got but we a still long road the, to go. We baby. still use the same uh, titles. So, so, yeah, staff writer, story editor. And can I tell someone else's anecdote here? Yeah, yes. uh, Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein, who ran the show for two of the years. I was there, brilliant writers. And Josh is running Disenchantment now, in fact. But anyway, those guys got hired initially at The Simpsons after some other jobs as story editors. And they had worked in these other cable things and all that did not follow this kind of formal title thing. So they did... They just heard the title story editor, and they knew that like Conan O'Brien was on the staff still at the time that they started. And so I've heard them talking about how, like, oh, my God, we've never worked on a sitcom before, and we're going to be editing Conan O'Brien's stories? <laughs> like, the term story editor is just a title that mm-hmm. it, might be, it might as well be called, you know, rank two. It yes. has right. no descriptive power over what you're doing. You're, <laughs> staff writer is actually a pretty good title. It's like you're all-purpose staff writer. After that, it's nonsense. You know, <laughs> story editor, co-producer. Producer, but you're just one of the writers, you know. Yeah, and it's different just kind in of, live action. It, 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 yeah, it, it, but it's not that different, really, mm. is it? I mean, oh, I've just heard it, that in, in drama, maybe yes, or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've just heard like I've talked to live action writers, and they're like, mm. "Story editor, the fuck," yeah. <laughs> and they think head writer is maybe an equivalent or something, yeah, but not even. Yeah, and 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 I know I've heard there's something in uh, like. Uh, soap operas and stuff like that, where these things actually mean something. So they mm-hmm. all, they meant something in some context, but in in these animated shows, and I think most sitcoms, they don't mean much of anything. There's the showrunner. There's some people appointed to run the room if the showrunner's not in there, mm-hmm. who uh, which is a lot of the time. And some shows have multiple rooms going, like The Simpsons. And then there's everybody else. And th- but those people have you know this unspoken thing, but nobody is thinking about oh that person is producer and that person's co-producer so i'm going to pay more attention it's nothing to Mm -hmm. do with that you know so i was staff writer and creator for periods which i don't remember but you know the first couple years because they you generally go up every once a year or something like that and these that's just how they write the contract so it sort of says something about how long you've been there 
but some people even purposely stall their title out because they don't want to like price themselves out of jobs and stuff because <laughs> yeah. like, the you know minimums go up with the writers guild but as far as practically speaking the first like year and a half i was at the simpsons i didn't write any scripts i was just in the room and that was pretty common at least for a year to sit there and just sort of absorb stuff so it was really when you say when i say it was like a learning experience it really was like <laughs> i was i was sitting there learning how to do the job and uh hopefully i learned enough by the time they sent me out to write a script that I knew the tone of the show. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm just going in all directions here. So Please but, love it. But, but often, once you've been on the show for a while, and sometimes they hire outside writers to do a freelance script, you can hire the best writers in the world. If they're not on the staff, the script's going to come in and it's going to be all wrong. I mean, it'll be hilarious. It'll be a good story, but every, it'll be all wrong and a lot of <laughs> work to fix up. And the, I don't know, you can't really put it into words, but you're reading it and you're like, that's not the way we're doing things now with the actors the way they sound now whatever it is i wouldn't have been able to write something right if i hadn't sat there for a long <laughs> mm -hmm. time and just soaked in what was going in the script what wasn't going in so and is that i mean does that feel like a, the year and a half kind mm -hmm. of being benched but not really because you're in the room but is that something that is specific to the simpsons or you know because i guess other shows may not have that length of real estate to right. sort of at, amp up. At, at that time there were i think there were 21 writers on the show mm. so you're looking at one script a year each if they have no outside writers right. come in. So there's no why would they give the new person a script when they've got all these good people, right? right, right so right. there was no need for me to write a script, and I would have liked to write a script. But from their point of view, they're like, we're paying this guy to sit there and pitch one or two jokes a day. So yeah. he should sit there. That and, actually sounds ideal to me. Yeah. But it varies, you know, tremendously if you're on a small staff and it's like a lot of times they're like everybody you know we're starting the season everybody go out and write a script and then we're going to regroup to start rewriting whatever it is so that varies a lot from show to show and year to year to list off the episodes that you are credited as writing and, and understanding that some of them uh well you mentioned the rewriting process and mm -hmm. when we talk to people who have written on the show they'll explain like yes i wrote it but right. <laughs> you know we'll count how many of my jokes are in it mm -hmm. um and there are also like a there are two treehouse episodes so we'll kind of go I, I wrote five treehouse episodes that's amazing yeah so check your sources there Oh, it's just that I didn't read Whoa, one. Whoa, jeez. Shade um, thrown, no, gauntlet thrown. When I say thrown. check because I can't remember which ones they are, so I'm taking oh, it. Check right. it to remind me. But I know, oh, yeah. I know it was – I remember numbers fine. It's just – I don't know what they were about. But. <laughs> and so for those, did you write a segment within them or you wrote eat the entire treehouse? At those times, it, they were usually divided three ways. So I wrote five – one-thirds of a treehouse episode. Got it. So I'm going to go through, and then we could, if any of them bring anything exciting to mind or uh, perhaps something negative, mm. uh, <laughs> we'd love to chat. But just for our listeners who maybe know David mostly as uh, a Futurama person and is not even thinking about, like, well, I knew he worked on the show, but which episodes? Right. You're going to be blown away. Mm. Some of the very best episodes, in my opinion. <laughs> um, so uh, the first episode was Treehouse of Horror 5, credited as David Cohen's Severed Hand. Next, one of the very best episodes especially for Julia and myself, Lisa the Vegetarian. Um, We're both vegan. And, uh, <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Were you influenced by that episode at all? Probably partially. Wow. Yeah. I, Just thinking of that little lamb. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I think of that all the time. When that episode came out, I remember my sister was vegan, and she was actually very much the Lisa of our family. I was kind of more of the... 
not like not necessarily Bart, but a little bit more of a mixture. But my sister, she she was like eight years older than I was. She went to Berkeley and she was a vegetarian. And, you know, she really like I don't think there were any characters like Lisa at all. When I was growing up, there weren't very many, but there were at least a couple of other girl characters that were compelling, Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, Daria or something. And for my sister, Rebecca, that episode rocked her world and it made her feel very much less alone in it. Like and she had like acne and was totally dorky (laughs) and like being a nerd wasn't cool at the time. Um, Thank God that changed. right? (laughs) I know. Yeah. (laughs) Again, high five swish. It's it's funny because as I've gotten older, that episode has meant even more to me than it did. As a kid, I liked it just so much because it's got some of the best lines and I love anything to do with Lisa, but also Paul McCartney and Beatles are the best band in the world. Yeah, Yeah. I can say a little bit about all those things. I mean, I will take credit for the theme of the episode. I remember uh, at lunch one day, I scro- on the back of a script, I wrote, Lisa becomes a vegetarian, question mark, and I showed it to this other writer, Brent Forrester. Have you had him, him no, on? No, not yet, but no, he's but on our list. Boy, <laughs> like to. If you want a good storyteller, yeah. you got to get Brent on here. He is, he, you won't say anything, but <laughs> it'd be so entertaining. I'm, he, I'm he fine is, with that. We'll um, just have him come in. We won't even arrive. Anyway, but he gave me like the thumbs up or something and that was the start of that that I remember. Uh, the, the main origin of that is that we spent so much of the day at The Simpsons thinking about food and eating food. And <laughs> yeah. So, like, you come in in the morning, we would start, you know, 10-something, 10 or 10.30, which is standard TV time, and then work too late, you know, till way after dinner or whatever. But the first thing we would do is order lunch. So it's like, come in. All right, first order of business, order lunch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where are we going for lunch? You know, and they don't want anyone to leave the lot. Because that would take way too much time. So you eat lunch in the writer's room. And so it's like you don't get a break from these people ever, really. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. but a lot of time thinking about food. And, of course, I'm sitting there looking at food. And there were vegetarians in the staff. I wasn't. Now I try to be like parched, mm-hmm. sometimes vegetarian mm-hmm. or me- individual meals vegetarian, ruling out certain times, kinds of meat. That, <laughs> so I try to... My theory, generally speaking, on that subject, is if everyone can go partway there to start, that would be a huge Absolutely. improvement. Right, but right. I admit I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm always impressed by vegetarians, and I wish I could be it. You've also <laughs> so, ins- you've inspired many hopefully. people. Yeah. Um, Jackie Johnson, our guest for that episode, became vegetarian or and then later vegan because of that episode, she mm-hmm. cited. Well, and I will say, uh, David Merkin was the, running the show at that time, and he was not a vegetarian at that time. And he has subsequently become outspoken vegetarian. Oh, wow. I, I don't know if the subject matter of that got him interested, but he was very enthousi- enthusiastic about the episode. He was the one who, he was. he's a huge music and especially Beatles fan, and so he was the one who thought to get Paul McCartney involved, and he flew to England to record Paul McCartney at some undisclosed <laughs> location. That's it, so cool. It sounded very exciting, and I don't remember the exact thing, but he, he quoted something to me where Paul McCartney had used my name in a sentence. So <gasps> that was my... The degree of That's my you need. one-way interaction yeah. with Paul McCartney, but anyway, wow! But it was that was his David Merkin's idea to get him involved. So all credit to him, and I believe he also thought of uh, you don't win friends with salads. So, oh wow! So several very, credits to David Merkin. The line that spawned a million <laughs> tattoos <laughs> in weird places, <laughs> and then um, especially with the political climate, go, go back to Russia is one that is, is yeah. used quite a bit. So after that, the Treehouse of Horror Six. Uh, in this one, you're credited as, as the square root of David X. S. Cohen. Uh, oh, yeah. We didn't mention everyone already knows. But just in case you somehow missed it, on The Simpsons, you went by David S. And then because of the WGA change, mm-hmm. uh, it became David X. And 
uh, I'm sure you've explained it a billion times, but it was sci-fi sounding and it made you stand out more than the David S. that was already signed up. Is Correct. That yes. Right? yes. Yeah. When, when we finally did get it represented by the union, there was already a David S. Cohen. They won't allow two people with the same name in the union because it's confusing. So, yes, X, because X is cool. That's about yeah, it. it is. <laughs> but a lot of people, because of my math background, a lot of times people wrongly, and you did not fall into this trap, but people often wrongly say, I heard it was because it looks like David Times Cohen. <laughs> and that I actually never thought of until people What is David me. Times Cohen equal? Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good time to take a little break. Yeah. Friendly Fire is a podcast about war movies, but it's so much more than that. It's history. It was just supposed to be another assignment. It's comedy. Under no circumstances are you to engage the enemy. It's cinema studies. It's a hell of a combination. So subscribe and download Friendly Fire on your podcatcher of choice. Or at MaximumFun.org. And also come see us at San Francisco Sketchfest on January 16th. You can get tickets at sfsketchfest.com. We're back. Welcome back to Round Springfield. We're going round Springfield. Mm. Uh, we were going through the credits on The Simpsons that David has worked on. So of the 22 short films about Springfield, was there a segment in particular that you wrote? Well, this is hardly a claim to fame, but I be- I know I wrote the part where uh, Reverend Lovejoy is walking his dog and oh. the, the dog is crapping on like <laughs> Ned's <laughs> lawn. I yes. think. And, and Great. I, think I, I believe I wrote something about Professor Frink that wasn't used. I think I think everyone wrote three. I think I wrote mm-hmm. three, and two were used. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what the other one was. Jeez, I Greg mean, Daniels was the was sort of wrangled the whole project. By mm-hmm. the way, if that hasn't come up before, I'm really making myself uh, vulnerable for not knowing who wrote this. But who wrote Professor Frank? Professor Frank. It makes you laugh. It makes you think. And the you know with the continued song that he does. Oh. <sighs> Because that, that's a classic. That is a question. classic. I that's should, such a great episode. I need to just learn. But anyway, um, <laughs> I need to be better. It's fine. Uh, so, You're perfect uh, just the way you are. Uh, much a poo about nothing. Uh, that was, boy, that talk about ones that come back into relevance. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm proud of that episode. It's whatever your opinions about Apu. I know there are many. Yeah. That episode, he's... I believe I feel that he's a well-rounded character in that episode. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And uh, I had re- fairly recently come from UC Berkeley studying computer science. I had fr- many friends who were from India who had come to study computer science at UC Berkeley. And so that was really re- represent a lot of the experience of people I personally knew and were friends of mine. So, you know, it wasn't my experience, but the idea that he, he studied computer science and stuff like that was directly based on people I knew who were from India. I love um, that. And there's another thing in that episode that I stole from real life. This uh, person I knew in college, and she was from Italy originally, um, this one as an undergraduate, and she took a citizenship test when she was in college, and I later asked her permission to use this story, which I did, but she was a history major at Harvard. Uh, I think an American history major. And so at her citizenship interview, they asked her, what were the causes of the Civil War? And so she launched into this long (laughs) monologue. And this is in in, Apu faces the same question in the episode. So she launched into this long 
monologue about economics and the <laughs> Confederacy and all you know and all this stuff. And she's going on and and, they, and finally the interviewer kind of rolled his eyes and he leaned over and he said, "Say slavery." <laughs> so I, uh, so uh, I, I, with her permission, stole that it. for Apu's citizenship. That's, it's interview. so good. Yeah. Uh, Nelson Franklin came on to talk about that episode, and that was his number one. Like, and I think he came on slightly later than some guests, and mm-hmm. he was like, "I can't believe this hasn't been picked yet. I'm so lucky." And yeah, in the conversation about Apu, it's obviously a much larger thing, and part of the idea that was being posed is not that there's really a problem with Apu as much as there is just not other characters to kind of show diversity of what being Indian American could look like. But in that episode in particular, I just think it's really well-rounded and just full of so many jokes. I've always felt like he was well-rounded and and had like an actual, like there was depth to his character. And I, I always believed him to be an ally to the Simpsons in a fun, like fully fleshed out character way. Like I, you know, I love it when he sings who needs the quickie mart and comes over and (laughs) hangs out with the Simpsons. But to me, again, I'm, I'm a a white lady watching this. We we can't say anything. So yeah, I mean, I I can only speak to my experience so far and yeah, take what we say with a big grain of salt. Here's a tiny trivia tidbit for your, any Led Zeppelin fans out there. Mm -hmm. The original title of that episode when I handed in was the anti-immigrant song. (laughs) Ooh, Zeppelin rules. (laughs) So to continue the list, we have Treehouse of Horror 7. You are credited as Day of the Cohen. That's a good one. Hey, that's pretty good. good. (laughs) (laughs) The Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie Show. Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorites, certainly, because that and Lisa the Vegetarian, I think, may hold up the best. But uh, Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie Show... Ironically, it's season eight or nine, whatever it is, reflecting on what it's like when a TV show is on for a really long time, yeah. which, again, who knew? But right. I feel like it turned a little corner in terms of being self-referential and being able to comment on The Simpsons in The Simpsons. So I think fondly of that episode. Yeah, yeah it's one of the greats. And I believe Josh Weinstein came came on to talk about that episode with us. Yeah. Uh, I, He's been on a bunch of times, so mm-hmm. it kind of... Blurs, <laughs> uh, but but that episode is very it's classic, classic, and also has likenesses of Simpsons writers, which is always very fun. Yes, yeah. I'm in there, but Harry Shearer played me. That's so exciting. Mm-hmm. I believe my line is that someone someone says, "What were you guys smoking when you came up with that?" And yes! and, and I say, "We were eating rotisserie chicken." <laughs> For some reason, that line I love. So, like I loved it as a child, and I love it today. And the, I, yeah. And the animators got pictures of all the writers' faces to draw the itchy and scratchy writers, but they didn't get full body shots. So everyone's heights are really all over the map. <laughs> oh, that's so, fun. Like like you mentioned, Josh Weinstein. I think in the show, he's in the animated form. He's about two feet taller than <laughs> right, in real life. Right, right, right. Ian Maxstone Graham was probably, if he was there at the time, was yeah. probably three feet well, he, shorter than he. Yeah, whatever. that's so funny. Josh writes like a tall man. So oh it all yes. Works out. <laughs> yeah, I love that episode because you know we've talked a lot on our previous uh, incarnation of this podcast, but the way that The Simpsons approaches like the meta ness of writing a TV show and like you know sort of commenting on the relationship with Fox and it never really feels fully snarky um, but then commenting on like just you know primetime sitcoms and like you know the nature of that and and how crossover episodes are often forced by the network and you know these kind of uh, ways to inject new life but I also love that episode not only because Poochie is such a fun character uh, what is he like half Joe Camel and a third Fonzarelli's <laughs> the breakdown of it um, but it's a really tender episode for Homer I think you know we all really love 
of when Homer has a, a new job that gives him validation <laughs> in life because he very rarely gets that. So it's a very tender, you know, moment for him, too. And, um, yeah, it's no wonder why it's endured. And I'm sure I'll keep talking about Simpsons tattoos. I don't know if you're following any of those Instagram accounts, but they're a good follow because you'll see, you know, pe- so many people have Poochie tattoos and so many people have Lisa the Vegetarian tattoos and, you know, all sorts. A few more just to list off just because they're so great. The Simpsons spinoff showcase, the Treehouse of Horror 8, uh, where you are, the credit here, I don't know if it's a typo, but it's just a, a, there's an emoji of a frown. So I'm guessing that there was like a, like a <laughs> something that couldn't be. I, I think that was like the square is. root of David Cohen. Oh, and that was, that was so maybe they, Oh, was it? Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think so if it had a, <laughs> oh, you know, the font would not have supported the I'll, I'll have to title, look up and, and see what it is, but. Uh, after that, uh, one of the greats, Lisa the Skeptic. I think I most enjoy writing for Lisa just because she truly cares about things. And it's like it's just much easier to tell any story when the main character cares right. deeply about it, you know. So then there are real stakes. But also, like, the jokes play better, too, when, like, people's emotions are – It's that's something I very gradually learned over the years. That it's like, oh, you can take it seriously and it's still funny, mm-hmm. you know. That episode, I had just gone to the Museum of Natural History in New York with my parents. I was on a visit home and uh, immediately was thinking about that episode on the, I think, on the plane on the way Those back are the here, best. So. Yeah. Those plane thoughts. I remember that episode, like, scaring me, oddly, and, and just really sticking with me. There were a lot of things about it that were just very emotional. And, like, I, I feel like it kind of took the show in a direction well, that it hadn't I, gone yet. It's got more Paul McCartney at the end. Yes. Isn't that, isn't that the... Oh, no, wait. Yeah. Uh, Oh no, that's the no. Sorry, I think it's Jimi Hendrix. I'm Jimi sorry. Hendrix, yes. Is it the, mm-hmm. is it the, angel, the I mean, angel song the at the end? I mean, what's the difference? <laughs> well, Paul McCartney okay. died decades no, no, ago, sorry. so <laughs> I'm, forgetting, I'm forgetting which right, sad right, right. walk off song we used in <laughs> yeah. which episode. Das Bus. Yeah. For me, that goes uh, in my top one or two every couple of years because mm-hmm. it changes like a Beatles song. Yeah. Um, but Das Bus is truly hysterical. That's like a more a, yeah. total all out kooky one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It is kooky, but it is one of the rare chances that we get to see all the Springfield kids hanging out and uh-huh. having an adventure. I feel like that episode and Lemon of Troy are these like two really perfect kids hanging out episodes that I think also like really, you know, exemplified the nature of animation in the 90s. There mm-hmm. were a lot of, you know, kids TV shows like Recess and um, Hey Arnold that were about kids hanging out. We've since drifted from that, but I felt like those episodes were really fun because it felt almost like a bottle episode. I guess it was technically in a way Mm -hmm. um, because we're not following the family. We're not following the core four. So it's nice to kind of take that little side jaunt. So when people talk about like classic Simpsons, uh, a lot of people cut off pretty early and I know that even Bart the Mother is considered a, like a little late for some people, but that is still an episode that people <laughs> say like, it. even if you don't like, you know, later Simpsons, of course, this is a conversation that was happening a long time ago. Yeah. Bart the Mother is such a good episode and you mm-hmm. should watch it anyway. That is a conversation I know that many snobs have uh, where Bart the Mother is a, a true exception and I Aww. wanted to say that because it's a good one. Keeping in mind, The Simpsons is doing very well for itself, and no one needs to say like, "Well, no one cares," <laughs> you know. But that episode is one that uh, I think uh, feels very classic. And that very, episode, yeah. when we, when I, I pitched it and we were discussing in the room, I think George Meyer rightfully pointed out that it risked being too corny, and <laughs> right, sappy, and so right. in the further discussion, we came up with the uh, lizards. 
part. Yeah. <laughs> oh, spoiler alert for anyone who didn't see that 20-year-old episode. Uh, and then the last that you are credited as writing, but correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, Treehouse of Horror 9, where you are David S. Coffin. Oh. <laughs> wow, that. I can't believe that it took you nine, <laughs> nine tries if, to get that the one. The Halloween dictionary should have helped me out. Soon. They didn't have rhyme Assuming zone. that's Halloween episode number five, then I sign off on that as the last one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. For the uh, spinoff showcase, I'll specify that I wrote the Wiggum P.I. <gasps> portion. Wiggum's Such a good one, one of my favorite. I think, it was Ken, I think Ken Keeler pitched the whole concept of that uh, yeah. episode. I always love it when Wiggum shows up. I've talked about it at length on this podcast, but I just find him to be delightful. I'm always happy when he's there, and he's such a great source of jokes and... Yeah, not a whole lot of character growth and tenderness, <laughs> but you don't really want that with Wiggum. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that moment when you found out that Ralph was Ralph Wiggum, which was not known? <laughs> yes. At the, oh, when, yeah. Like, that was crazy. That was shocking. It was. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about Futurama for yeah. a second. Yeah. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my friend's favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. I'm Judge John Hodgman. You're hearing the voices of real litigants, real people who have submitted disputes to my internet court at the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I hear their cases. I ask them questions. They're good ones. And then I tell them who's right and who's wrong. Thanks to Judge John Hodgman's ruling... My dad has been forced to retire one of the worst dad jokes of all time. Instead of cutting his own hair with a flowbie, my husband has his hair cut professionally. I have to join a community theater group. And my wife has stopped bringing home wild animals. It's the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Find it every Wednesday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Judge John Hodgman. What a good break. Before we jump all the way to Futurama, there were a couple things that you mentioned via email, not to pull the curtain back too much, that I want to touch on to give you a chance to talk about. You mentioned Simpsons Lunch Bell. Oh, my God. I was talking about food earlier, and I I had the perfect segue, and I totally (laughs) bungled it. it. To give you more behind-the-scenes hijinks here, but um, this, this will just illustrate how much we were thinking about food all the time. So we would come in, order lunch. First thing, many of us not having eaten breakfast because we had been up late the night before and barely made its work at 10. You know, whatever <laughs> the next, but uh, so everybody was starving at around one o'clock when assistants would come in carrying giant boxes of whatever lunch we had ordered um, to the point that it was really like people saying, was that creek on the stairs? Is that the lunch coming? <laughs> so we were very close to being the Pavlov's yep. dogs <laughs> listening for any subtle hint that food was about to come to the point we were drooling you know i mean yeah, it was yeah. it was all very dehumanizing and one day i was talking about this with writer john collier uh, about how much we were becoming like drooling dogs and we <laughs> thought oh the only thing that could make it even more dehumanizing is if someone actually did ring a bell <laughs> and all the writers went running to get their lunches and then so that day we went out to this music store near the fox lot <laughs> we wolfed our lunch ran out bought a cowbell <laughs> and from that day on for probably the next at least 10 years 
they rang the bell every day when lunch arrived, which you could hear throughout the whole lot, basically. It. it says, like, oh, the Simpsons writer's lunch is here. Ding, 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 ding. I and love it. The first, like, six times they did that, we fell on the floor laughing, like, oh, my God, it's the ultimate degrading thing. And by, like, day seven, we're like, the bell's ringing. Drool is coming out of my I mouth. Yeah, Where's yeah. my lunch? Um, we, and we briefly in- introduced a triangle, like an old, you know, campfire triangle for dinner as well. That's excellent. Yeah. I, I love it being different for dinner. So you don't get confused <laughs> right, 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 that you're right. getting a second lunch. <laughs> I get that. Uh, did, did the bell last uh, for any period it, of time? I, I think 10 years at least. That's I mean, amazing. way after I left the show, yeah. yeah. It's not there now, but I don't know when it went away. <laughs> so when looking up about um, Futurama and kind of how difficult it was to get the show actually on the air. Um, There's a Matt Groening quote where he says that trying to get the show on the air was by far the worst experience of his grown-up life. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember that being the case for you as well, or this being your first show that you were, well, was it the first show that you were actually pitching as well? Yes and yes. It's really hard. I mean, it wasn't hard to sell the show, really, because I walked in with Matt Groening, right? Yeah, so, right. So he could have walked in with, uh, you know, banana peel, and <laughs> banana peel's running the show. Like, we'll I, take 20 of I them. I know, they pointed the banana peel. Um, I like how you don't talk. Yeah. So um, you got to go from nothing to the expectations of the most successful show in the world, The Simpsons, right? And hire people quickly, write a lot of stuff quickly, cast the show and I had not run the show before. If I had run a show before, I'm sure it would have been a lot easier. But I had to learn how to run the show while I was running the show. So um, the first year of, of Futurama, that's the first year of Futurama, very close to killed me, I would say. And, you know, it's it's not that much of an exaggeration. I really, in retrospect, a lot of it was lack of sleep because I would just, I worked seven days a week and I was, I when everyone else left at 11 p.m., I would stay till 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Wow. or whatever. I mean, it was because then they would leave and I would be editing or whatever that right. I couldn't do. And, um, and you weren't in a relationship at this time or you were? Uh, <laughs> not for long. <laughs> I was going to say, because no. that doesn't seem very no, 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 conducive no. to no. you. Yes. If yeah. you're asking about my wife, who I may have mentioned earlier, no, I certainly did not okay. meet her <laughs> or anyone else right. during that phase. Um, so, yeah, it's not conducive to that. Um, so, uh, it was stressful and exhausting, and you don't know yet. You know, you have to learn what you can let other people do, which I was never that good at, <laughs> right. but eventually did. Um, and then the later years of Futurama were fine. You know, it was like I, you know, someone else, I, Ken Keeler, I mentioned before, he would he would run the room when I wasn't there, or we'd have two rooms or whatever. But And the later, later Futuramas were really a f- fairly smooth operation, but... But the first year, deadly. And then that's that's not even mentioning what Matt was worried about because, you know, he's talking more about the relationship with the Fox network. Mm, yeah. And uh, there were some rough meetings where, uh, you know, they had ordered the shows, but it was not clear it was going to go on the air, I, I think, at, point, at points along the way. And they're like, you know. Bender's really mean, and <laughs> right, right. Um, and the greatest quote ever from Matt Groening, you know, is executive saying, "We expected this show to be more like The Simpsons," and Matt said, "It is like The Simpsons. It's different and original." <laughs> yeah, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so Matt was tough. Matt has a backbone, and uh, he did not roll over, and he really that's stood up good. for everything. And you know, the first 
season of the show is when i look back at it is it's hit and miss and it's got really funny stuff and the stories are fairly sloppy and what we got much better at and what i certainly feel i got much better at was telling a story that makes sense and (laughs) you know has a dramatic climax and and the part i said earlier about taking the story seriously and it can still be funny but it, right. boy, you got to learn everything while you're doing it it's tough. yeah and the, i think it shows i find futurama to be you know a little bit more cinematic than uh the simpsons in that way and maybe that's a credit to oh, the storytelling is very strong but but also i think maybe the environment of sci-fi could sort of lend itself to that yeah a it was bit. super set up to be visual you know yeah. ro- rockets and planets and mm-hmm. and um Rough draft animators. Woo! Give a little, <laughs> Is that Rough Draft Studios you're referencing? Rough Draft Studios. Yeah. You got to give them a lot of credit, obviously. And, uh, you know, some look at where some people have gone from there. Like Rich Moore was our supervising Amazing. director earlier on, is now a, one of the biggest feature animation directors in the world. Yeah. Right? So. Rough Draft is also Disenchantment, too, right? That's right. Yes, because uh, I remember that I got to uh, introduce uh, Rough Draft when I did the Disenchantment panel. At Comic-Con, right. yeah. I was there. You were there. I was in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of visuals, one thing that I would love to know more about is the design that you did for one of the robots uh, on the show which I've heard that you're very proud of. I am very proud of it. How do you know about that? It's like a DVD extra or something? Yeah. Like, I don't know where people find stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not known. I was there. You know, I'm not, I'm not known as In a... In the audience <laughs> of you drawing. <laughs> no, but I, I'm not known as a great visual artist, generally, among people who've seen my visual art. But uh, animation is a very collaborative process. Right, Normally, right. we let the animators do that mm-hmm. part of the job. Um but there was this, yeah, we had a scene in a robot strip club that Bender was <laughs> attending, visiting. Yeah. And um, I had this concept of this fembot, was our tech, that's the technical scientific term, who right, was right, performing right. on stage. And I wanted this, you know, hip, gyrating hip motion. But I had this very specific idea. So I drew the actual art for this one thing and had them translate, <laughs> but which is the, basically the robot had this gear in place of, hips and another gear which revolved around the outside of that <laughs> gear which made the hip motion if you can picture that if yeah. not you might have to watch Futurama <laughs> if, oh god if you're getting bank. excited hearing this <laughs> description I'd rather die eventually <laughs> in 50 years <laughs> I would love to to talk a little bit more about just kind of beginning working on the idea for Futurama with Matt and how that came to be and kind of uh, your involvement yeah well mm-hmm. I was at the Simpsons at the time so it's, it's <laughs> that's a good connection point most of the time I was at the Simpsons there was this rumor that Matt was Matt Groening was working on a new show, and it was going to be science fiction oriented, and that's all anyone knew. It was top secret. It may have been top secret because Matt hadn't thought of anything else yet. Right, <laughs> right. But but eventually he did think of several of the basics, and he had the characters, for example, of Fry and Leela and Zap Brannigan, at least those three before I even came aboard. So he told me about them a little. Um, but I did not know I was going to end up working on that show. I had just heard about it. It was kind of one of those things where there was a large collection of nerds available <laughs> on the Simpsons writing staff, each of which tended to have their specialty. Like mm-hmm. you mentioned, Josh Weinstein, he is a super nerd when it comes to like old timey products and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, he's uh, talked about it a little bit, he's um, got and vet... Conan's talked about it on his podcast yeah, so, too. But I was kind of the more up the middle classic sci-fi nerd guy so after 
after perhaps whoever else <laughs> Matt wanted or couldn't get, I was the obvious choice among the staff as the sci-fi. <laughs> so he wrote me aside, and I was very excited because those were the days when people left The Simpsons mm-hmm. to do things, other things, and roll the dice. So um, that was super exciting for me. But I kept working at The Simpsons for a full year, probably, while we discussed Futurama, you know, over dinner or evenings or weekends or that kind of stuff. So it was a very long, drawn-out process, which... In retrospect, I think we overthought, and <laughs> there were characters we did not get to for years that we had discussed in detail <laughs> at right. that time. So, right. uh, but another thing, you learn later that characters come into their own once they're once they have a voice and once they have a little backstory, and you don't have to make up everything in advance. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I feel like I heard that um, the the pitch had a lot of details, and it was like it was really, really... Lo- it was really long. We had like a binder of you know, <laughs> stories and characters, artwork, and mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it was unnecessarily long and ended with the expected like thirteen <laughs> right, plays, right, right. And, you know. Um, and I think Matt has also also credit to Matt. I think he said like that was the last good meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's all downhill from there when they start weighing but it, in. But it is tough because, you know, Matt Groening wanted it to be consciously very different from The Simpsons mm-hmm. because he didn't want to look like he was stealing from himself and from the hard work right. of other people who worked on The Simpsons. So it was like, okay, The Simpsons is kids and parents, so Futurama is going to be young adults because that's grounds that's not covered. And The Simpsons is now and, you know, Futurama is a th- thousand years from now and The Simpsons is a home and Futurama is a workplace. So it's like... In many ways that, that we could think of, we were trying to differentiate it from The Simpsons. But you can see how, from the network's point of view, it's like Simpsons 2 would be an easier Right. Sell. Of course, so. yeah. yeah. Which is why they're in that position and not in the right. creative positions, not to disparage them too much. I was going to ask, you know, now that you've worked on three Mac rating shows, including The Simpsons, and, you know... Uh, Simpsons has such a huge fan base. Um, how do you reconcile the potential of fan disappointment with uh, a show like Futurama before, you know, when it was first premiering and people were expecting it to be Simpsons 2 mm. and maybe later also with Disenchantment, but wherever. Yeah. Good question and lo- hard and long answers possible right. and emotions and stuff. <laughs> um, you can't come off the Simpsons and make another Simpsons. It's just the odds are almost zero, right? So it's right. like it would be easier to follow something mediocre. But, you know, the Simpsons was the best thing ever. Um, so expectations too high, yes. But And also the first season of Futurama, it was fine. But again, not as good as later seasons. So part of the, I think, part of the thing I would take from it is like give stuff a chance, you know, mm-hmm. um, things if you look at the first season of The Simpsons in retrospect, I don't think it's that great. You know, it's yeah. good. It's, at the time, at the time, I, I myself was like, "This is the best thing right. I've ever seen." But in comparison to later stuff, it's it's rocky. You know, mm-hmm. even season two, it's rocky. So um, you got to figure stuff out, and you got to give t- shows usually time to figure stuff out. Sometimes something comes full blown from some character somebody does or whatever. But so a little bit of a lesson in patience, and right. um, <laughs> which is not a virtue of TV in general, and. Um, and then what else can I say? Like, what would I have wished that it would be as big as The Simpsons? Of course. But ultimately, am I, ultimately, my feelings about Futurama are there was a phase where it got canceled on the network after four years. And mm-hmm. I really I did feel it was very emotional. And there was, a, you know, goodbye forever to everybody. Yeah. And, uh, you know, felt like. We really had just the last season or two figured out how to make it really good, mm-hmm. I felt like. And then, you know, 
always a borderline or every year a borderline audience with Fox Broadcast Network. And so it was always tenuous whether we're coming back or not. Then we came back for some direct to DVD stuff. Yeah, it was like four different uh, yeah, movies. And uh, it was like, we want to make a direct to DVD video, but that movie. And then. Um, that got pumped up to four, so we're like, "Oh, this is you know, <laughs> yeah. this is pretty good actually." Which later became sixteen episodes when they aired them on TV, and then Comedy Central. Then it was good goodbye again for everybody. Goodbye forever. Comedy Central then ordered twenty six episodes to show as two seasons. So it's like, okay, this is like a bonus round. I'm starting to feel pretty good about the whole right. thing at that point. And then they ordered another twenty six episodes after we thought we were done again. By the way, we wrote the last episode for the third time. During the first 26 and for the fourth time during that last 26. So you can't, when you get canceled the third and fourth time, you're like, you don't, there's no more tears anymore. Yeah. Like, All right. <laughs> see you. I if see we come you. back or if, and also on an animated show, you, you, you know, you, you're like, goodbye, everyone, you know, crying hugs. And then you're like, oh, the animatic, the rough animation comes back a few months later and you see everyone again. Yeah. And the actors are in again and the writers in again. Right, and then right, the color right. comes in and they again pick up lines. And so it's like, all right, you know, enough. <laughs> you can't say goodbye that many times. So animation, you, <laughs> you rapidly get tired of saying goodbye, even after one cancellation. So, <laughs> so the first one's very emotional. The second one a little bit. The fourth one, not that emotional. Right. You're like, we're, we, I feel very fortunate we got the second chances, and I feel like we made good use of them. And I feel very proud of the whole history of, of the show and the the body of work of the show when I look back on it now. But I really think that is due to it having come back. Like I would have always been kind of sad about it if it had not had the second, third, fourth life. Yeah, we all would be when when Futurama aired. I was like nine or something and i remember like seeing a show that looked very like visually looked very similar to the simpsons the simpsons of course was my very favorite show i turned it on and it was uh it was just above my head i i just couldn't connect right away because it wasn't about two kids and it was like to me that man looks 35 (laughs) (laughs) and um, yeah and i think the the feeling that i had as a child was kind of like it looks too much like the simpsons to not be the simpsons so i'm just going to keep watching the simpsons Mm -hmm. and then i revisited it when i when it had uh, left the air and then returned and then it when i was the right age for, for me to get it it was my favorite show i liked it even better than uh aspects of the simpsons mostly because well you better this is you better watch what you say or you'll get kicked <laughs> off your own true. i know it's true i'm uh, gonna be the warden well, on that's this very kind of you. it, it <laughs> really truly that. it's so special and it's yeah. so good and the simpsons is an interesting thing to examine just because if you're looking at it as its whole i think that the percentage of, of excellent futurama episodes uh, for its whole is 100 percent so right, you know right. for and for some people they think that about the simpsons too they're obviously great simpsons episodes for the entire time but my personal preference i'm one of the snobs like i yeah. i like an era better than i like you know and i'm like that with weezer and, and mad magazine which i worked at so right, i right, totally right. get it and it goes without saying but the degree of difficulty starts going up a lot around of episode course. 300 of <laughs> right of course. to come up with new original things yeah so, it's mind-blowing so. um you never it, want to seem like you're just like sort of coasting and i think that you know like thank god futurama is not uh, an exact replica of the simpsons even if people that are big fans of the simpsons like your nine-year-old self would have you know thinking that they wanted that mm-hmm. but i think that in the way that it is so distinctly different that's been a credit to why it's 
endured and why and how it's endured and been picked up. You know, not really intentionally from a business point of view, but just the fact that it's set way in the future and it's science fiction yeah. puts it less in in terms of uh, of uh, popular culture in a certain time. So it, a lot of the stories are more, you know, agnostic about <laughs> what time, what year you're watching the episode. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I, I do feel like Futurama could be for everybody. The, the Simpsons is very naturally for everybody because there's someone, you, that if you're watching it, you're like, well, I'm either Homer or Grandpa or I'm this or I'm that because mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. a family. But I really do think that like Futurama seems to be for like a, a really smart, uh, cool group of people. I feel like Futurama fans are really great. Yeah, <laughs> You yeah. probably know better than I do. And I bet you've seen that both sides of it. They're all um, college educated. They seem yeah. really smart and, mm-hmm. and, and they know, know their stuff. About the ages, one thing I'll mention, it, when we were on broadcast TV, you were talking about you were too young for Futurama. Futurama had the youngest average wow. viewership of any show on, bro- on broadcast amazing. TV, all networks, younger than The Simpsons, That's when amazing. we were on broadcast TV. Um, and I don't know that it was necessarily that we had more kids watching, but we had no old people watching. No oh, old people good. would not watch. They might watch The Simpsons. They would not watch. That's really Futurama. funny. In fact, you know, in Futurama, at the beginning of each episode, we have a little tagline at the bottom that changes every episode. And one of them, which was extremely accurate if you looked at the demographics, was fun for the whole family except grandma and grandpa. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, I also feel like um, in uh, my research before we sat down today, you know, I realized that the Futurama, you guys are a part of a really interesting part of, um, I will say, you know, not just animation cultural history, but like just sort of TV cultural history because, you know, of course you guys got uh, canceled and then, um, you know, found your way back to, um, first it was syndication and then it was the reorder and new episodes, but uh, it was you and Family Guy that got you mm-hmm. know popular yeah. through syndication or popular through DVD sales. Yeah, it worked better came for Family first. Guy, but it, <laughs> it still worked better for us than for most people. You know, I mean, but that's, yeah, I feel like that's very a big moment, rare story. And Family Guy illustrates the A plus version and Futurama the B plus version or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, we were both shows canceled after a few years on uh, Fox broadcast. Both shows went to uh, Adult Swim mm-hmm. cable and started airing at 2 a.m. And with the lowest of expectations yeah. and no monetary value, basically. <laughs> and then a big viewership. And they're like, what, it, what is going on? And we both got to ride kind of a cha- the changes uh, in the TV business where, oh, first there was a big shift to cable TV and niche audiences who could support a show, whereas you need everyone to watch on broadcast. You know, oh, the same audience that loved these shows on broadcast but wasn't big enough was a big audience on cable TV at 2 a.m., a really big, you know, shockingly big. So then, um, yeah, the DVD return for Futurama, riding that moment in history when DVDs were a giant thing, right? So we got to benefit from that period in TV history, then picked up for originals on cable TV rather than just being a library, you know, of reruns. But then, oh, cable, you know, original shows with a budget are starting to appear on cable TV. Right. We got to ride that. We The only thing we – and now we're actually, you know, as in reruns, still pretty well received, I think, on streaming mm-hmm. services. But we never – we have not I, – I shouldn't say never, but we have not – as of the current date, we have not ridden the wave of, you know, resuscitation by <laughs> streaming service. But, but <laughs> at all those other stages came along 
right in time to save us and family yeah. game, basically. If there were a demand, or even if there wasn't uh, just out of uh, your own feelings and, and ideas, is there a future for Futurama? Uh, yeah, you know, my, my theory is always, if someone will, wants to bring it back and do it right and not do the, you know, cheap cutting corner version and, you know, can't get the cast and can't get the right. writers and it's going to look, it's going to be done in someone's garage. So the conditions would have to be right and maybe maybe we would do less less than the last time we brought it back it was each time for an order of 26 which is mega order by today's standards so i could imagine right. trying something on a little smaller scale or the thing i always say maybe futurama feature film yeah because it is super yeah. visual it would lend itself very well to that and we've you know we used to have uh just like a cast and crew party went for a season premiere and we would show a regular episode in a movie theater yeah and it looks great it would even just the TV version. It looks amazing. I mean, would love it. I think we need to have a moment of silence for everybody to tweet the uh, <laughs> shut up and take my money gif. Yeah, yeah. Everybody uh, take out your phones. Children, <laughs> you too, if you're driving. Uh. The, the, it's one of them. Um, Simpsons and, and Futurama are so perfect for internet culture. It's insane. I know. Um, and that's actually one of the more interesting things uh, about looking at the Simpsons versus Futurama versus Disenchantment is kind of their, their different premieres in terms of the Simpsons didn't have the internet at first. People having forums and speaking until a little bit later. So Josh and Bill would talk about how even in dial-up. Yeah, and they would have to really make an effort to learn what people thought of the Simpsons outside of like the network. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, that became very prominent. There's a chapter about that in our book, mm. uh, 100 Things the Simpsons Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Um, <laughs> I love how you always like are proud of yourself when you remember the full title. It's a, it's a long... I believe I'm the contributor of Worst Episode Ever. <gasps> You're also cromulent. Wow. I mean, not that I made up the phrase, but that I noticed that it was coming into play on the early internet oh, and yeah. had c- adopted it for a comic book guy. That's amazing. amazing. <laughs> and then you took back the night and it's part of Simpsons history. <laughs> and then um, you would confirm that you are responsible for Cromulent? I'm absolutely responsible for Cromulent. Writer Dan Graney is responsible for Ambigan, which was kind of <laughs> the primary fake word in mm-hmm. that episode. And I always feel like he's given too little credit because Embiggen is very good. Embiggen yeah. is so believable that you're just like, oh, actually, oh, the word Embiggen. But right? I, I think Embiggen Embig- is yeah. so fake that it, like, <laughs> someone made that up. So I get a lot more I don't credit. Know. I think that also Embiggens and Cromulent are a good pair They're of a good fake t- words. Team, yeah. yeah, and they work really well in a sentence. So I know that Cromulent has actually made it into the dictionary, but I, I wonder if Embiggen has. I would have to. I'd have to check. We'll my, take another moment for sources. everybody listening to pull over <laughs> and tweet to Webster. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about Futurama, but we'll we'll maybe just have to have ask you back. to come back again next but... time. You change the name of the show. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to so everything's coming up to you. Futurama. We're modeling it after actually Futurama coming back and mm, going and coming back. Idea. So this is actually very back, appropriate. And you can, when the new medium of sonic brainwaves yes. comes in, you can ride that. Mm-hmm. But I, I just want to say one of the things that makes it so great, I think to many people in addition to having like actual science and math and being so smart and having uh you know showing things that tv shows hadn't really done before in the comedy world especially it's the most emotional cartoon ever to this day still jurassic bark and all that and just fry in general as a character yeah um the entire show is so uh it's heart-wrenching and it's like very beautiful and amazing and it's just such a great show so thank you very much thank you that's the thing that you don't see coming and we didn't see coming and uh, again it's all 
you can do everything in one episode. It can be yeah. A, it can be a serious sci-fi story. It can be funny and it can be heartbreaking. And it's like I just didn't know till we did a few of them that you could do it. But it it, it works fine. Yeah, <laughs> I also feel like a lot of the main cast has like really dark undertones to their mm. backstories particularly mm. um, and maybe a little bit of that is the freedom of it being this futuristic society so you can kind of like play on you know sort of apocalyptic scenarios or dystopian scenarios but I feel like it is that darkness of you know that they're overcoming by bonding together and you know going on their adventures and I think that that allows you know all of these sort of fractured characters to have more of a tenderness to them and an endearing quality to us as viewers you know I, and I will say, like, I always took particular pride when I would read someone's review on the internet where they would say, like, a tear. I got a tear in my eye. Like, there was one where it was like, I hate Futurama. I was watching it and, you know, enjoying the show. And suddenly I found myself crying and I was so mad. And it's like, <laughs> I love that, it. But, High praise. But I feel like that is a challenge because it's like you're writing a cartoon about monsters and somebody cried. Like, that's not that easy. Yeah. So. And I feel like everyone has to do their job well to pull that off. Like it has to be well written, has to be well animated, so that you got to see the emotion in the face. It has to be beautifully acted. And we had a great cast that could pull that off. Because again, yeah, I don't want to undercredit them. Because if you can be playing a, a lobster or whatever cyclops yeah. and make people cry a tear for you, you're doing <laughs> a good job. Yeah. Uh, so before we wrap up, I'm really curious. Uh, you've obviously had a very successful career, undeniably so, but we are very curious. Have there been any maybe failed pilots or things that have kind of not gone Pitch your way? Pitches gone that, awry. Yeah, think, <laughs> things that you could share with us. There there may well be some of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've, I've written several other pilots that you never heard about <laughs> something may have gone wrong I, the one which i most think could have been really great i will tell you how about i tell you about that one i would uh, love to hear that this was after cancellation number one of futurama this is like what am i going to do um and i i was thinking about this idea for again probably a little too long and i ultimately pitched it and sold it to fox network and the show was called grandmaster freak and the furious 15 <laughs> Man after um, my own heart. So, I see that on a page. Yeah. I'm watching. Uh, and it was based a little bit on my childhood because I grew up in this town called Englewood, New Jersey, which was the home of Sugar Hill Records. Mm -hmm. And so I was um, around a lot of very early rap music in the 1980s. And uh, it was a really good visual time as well for fashion. And, and so great music, great fashion stuff. I thought it'd make a good animated show. So the sort of the joke of it was there was this guy who was the leader of the group grandmaster freak and then 15 sort of miscellaneous people because he couldn't say no to anybody and someone's in it so their twin sisters have to be in it and you know whatever yeah. so so right off the bat you're gonna just see the poster is gonna be this like grid of characters and you're gonna know there's like a large group <laughs> you're gonna uh, get into so so first i pitched it to ice cube because i'm a big ice cube mm -hmm. fan and he agreed to he would uh co-star and produce the wow. show so cool. i went in with ice cube and pitched this show and we sold it to a couple of places but we sold it to fox network to the president at that time gail berman now one thing that happens when you sell a pilot among other things is uh you know i wrote it and went through a lot of notes and stuff but also 
the leadership of Fox Network turned over. Oh, yeah. So someone yeah. else came in. But I don't even remember who it was, and he had no interest in it at no. all. And it just kind of that happens so, so often to all of us, mm-hmm. each and every one of us. <laughs> Allie, myself, mm-hmm. no, no. <laughs> but uh. and and so there was also a little bit of a fantasy element to it because I had put myself in as David Cohen in the group. Um, so it was like uh, fifteen cool people and me. Making like beeps on my Apple II computer was my. I love it. That was going to be my function in the show. That's fun. <laughs> I I want to see that show. Hey, maybe. I, I mean, like... we live in a crazy Wild West streaming time now, and people are greenlighting things that are from decades ago. So you if never there know. There are fifteen unemployed rappers who want to <laughs> join me. I think we can round them up. <laughs> uh, but it's very nice, I think, for people, no matter how far along you are in your career, but especially for people just starting out to be reminded the people that made your very favorite things have also not always succeeded. And right, that, it's right. a very crucial part. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of other things I left out, too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for now, I'm wondering if um, this is a this is a question that we always do on the Simpsons podcast of which character do you think you are from the Simpsons? But just of any of the things that you've worked on, is there one character? in particular that you most identify? Oh, well, I think I mentioned earlier, Simpsons-wise, I'm Lisa, for sure. Like I'm the rule-following attempt to do gooder in my own mind. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe failing, but uh, that's why I just, I I always felt like she was the most easy to write a, a meaningful story about. Futurama, it's, ironically, I feel less similar to anybody in <laughs> Futurama. People always make me the professor, I guess. Oh, really? But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't see it. It's more by training and le- less <laughs> right, by right, right. confusedness, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing the show. And folks at home, make sure that you're watching Disenchantment Season 2. Yeah. Uh, you probably already have, uh, assuming that you listen to this podcast. Otherwise, we watch Season 1. <laughs> so prep um, for Season 2. And all 39 right? seasons of Futurama. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you again. This has been such a blast. Uh, you are... Not on social, uh, but Julia, where can people find you? Oh, thanks so much for asking. I'm at Julia Prescott on all the things. Allie, where can people find you? People can find me at Allie Gerson on all the things. Thank you so much for asking. Round Springfield is a production of Maximum Fun. We're a member-supported show. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to contribute. This episode was engineered by Jordan Cowling. Our booking manager is Jesus Ambrosio, and our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Swish. All right. Smell you later. Still smell you later. Still smell you later. <laughs> <laughs> MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported